0: Episode 135 Get Future Proof, what you need to be doing now. Today, I speak with David Smith, Chief Development Officer over at Levitt Partners.
1: American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives, you want to know, talking. Relentlessly Seeking Value.
0: Today, I speak with David Smith, who is the Chief Development Officer at Levitt Partners. First, David and I discuss inexorable trends, transformations where the train has left the station and it is not turning back. Then, David offers up three strategic considerations to take action on right now. No matter how hard I tried, I was unable to ask David a question that he was unable to answer. And his advice is sage. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, David.
1: Hi, Stacey. Thank you.
0: Do you think that the shift from FFS to value-based care is inexorable? It's going to happen? Just it's the speed that's in question?
1: Yeah, we, I would say, Levitt Partners generally does. And and that's not born out of any kind of altruism or an overabundance of positivity. We just view it as an economic reality. There is a threshold at which healthcare can continue to consume as much of our GDP as it does and as it could uh, before we begin to make very difficult societal trade-offs and suffer certain implications for that and that what we call dispassionate economics begin to force decision makers, policy makers into and, and making very you know, difficult decisions and charting a, a difficult path.
0: If you had to do some scenario planning, where will we be one year from now relative to this defining value question and reimbursement question? Make some predictions here. What are the the three ways we could go? Or maybe the one way, I'm not sure how many (laughs) possibilities we have. (laughs) How much do you want to hedge your bets,
1: David? Yeah, well, (laughs) what what day of the week is it? so as it pertains to health care and inexorable shifts, I, I definitely think there are a couple of others that should be commented on. One I think would be expanded access to healthcare, expanded coverage, largely has been driven, of course, by the federal government and by state governments. And, and despite whatever happens with the AHCA or ACA repeal and replace. We at this point seem to have made a societal decision that a lower uninsured rate is better than a higher uninsured rate and that expanded coverage lowers the burden on families and lowers the financial burden on hospitals and care institutions. Now there's economics around financing that system and and how we expand that choice and what some of the other requirements are that we hook to that. And those are important conversations to have, but I, I think this notion of expanding coverage is is something that continues to be inexorable, to use your language. I think a second one is this notion of consumerism and uh, consumer choice, and there are a couple caveats and, and key pieces to this. And one is that consumers don't behave like rational decision-makers in healthcare like they do in other industries. And it's obvious why that's the case. We're dealing with uh, serious conditions, uh, oftentimes life-changing, life-altering circumstances, and it doesn't produce the same rational decision-making that you might have when you're purchasing a car, purchasing an airline ticket, or something of that nature. also in healthcare, we have this major problem in information and transparency, what economists call information asymmetry. And that consumers don't have full information to make those decisions. Now, we're seeing this, you know, if you go to HIMSS and you walk the HIMSS show floor, you'll see hundreds and hundreds of companies that have built widgets and solutions and technologies that try to solve these information asymmetry problems and try to solve these rationale problems. And, And that's an inexorable shift. I think we'll continue to see businesses try to solve some of these challenges with and for consumers and, and drive healthcare into a place where traditional economic decision-making can be more present. I would also say, though, that 90% of these organizations have not really figured out how to plug their solution into the workflow, how to be integrated, how to be reimbursed for these services, and ultimately how to really engage consumers in a different way. And so that, that'd be another inexorable shift.
0: If you have surrogates, you know, so you've got an insurance company paying for someone, then it's hard for a consumer to assess the value. Generally speaking, you make rational buying decisions based on how much something costs. But if you have a very, very costly procedure... That costs just as much as a less costly procedure, or maybe the less costly procedure actually costs more because of the way your copays work. Then that also cuts into a consumer's ability to make a rational economic choice.
1: Yeah, no, I, I think you're spot on, and I might even just for for purposes of of this discussion, I might bifurcate the personalities and the decision making profiles of of an individual into two camps. i I'd, I'd say there is a consumer, and then there's a patient. And in my view, consumers are oftentimes making more decisions about how do I access care, what insurance should I purchase, what specialist should I go see, what's the timing at which I should see a specialist. And again, you'll have some irrationality and and, and other uh, rate limiters, but but those are kind of more consumer decisions about how I engage the system. But once I'm inside the system, I really become a patient, and I begin to. Think Think about things a bit differently. If I'm presented with a diagnosis or or the outcome of of a test that is showing some life-threatening or chronic or, or otherwise debilitating condition, that begins to change the way in which I make decisions. And at that point, the physician really controls the expanded options or really presents the one option, and maybe there really is one option. Uh, in those cases, you know, you have some technology companies that are going out. And there's they're they're creating quick and easy access points to second opinions or multiple opinions that expands the options. But when you're in a clinical setting and you're dealing with science and the application of science there tend to be finite options in what can be done. And and that's where this gets very difficult. What's clinically expedient? What's clinically appropriate? And how do you make sure for the patient that we're being responsible in what is scientifically proven to address that particular condition? And then how are we making sure that that patient is being presented with all of those options absent any economic uh, considerations?
0: Yeah, that makes sense. In fact, I heard someone say the other day that we shouldn't call people consumers, we should call them co authors. Because really,
1: oh, every, interesting.
0: I thought so, too. Okay, so we've got as far as our trends moving forward, which will definitely be true at some level a year from now, we have the expanded access, we have the this consumerism or whatever we want to call it. Are there more?
1: Well, and then of course there's there's the movement from value-based reimbursement, which I know we we covered a little bit earlier, and you know one other one I would throw in, and I, and I don't know exactly how to define the trend line for this, but I, I'd say it's the changing nature of practicing medicine itself, and and it's the the role of the physician, and you know I think for some time we through regulation and policy and legislation. We have imposed uh, greater and greater requirements on physicians, and uh, we've expected more non-clinical activities uh, of a physician than we've expected clinical activities, and we've solved for that uh, in different ways, but I think we are going to, to see the practice of medicine and the practice-level uh, orientation, the, the, the group practice itself. Uh, begin to change and modify and transform a bit. I think this will lead to greater adoption of and more practical use of clinical data. Uh, And in EHRs, I think we'll find more efficient ways to allow for that information to be present. I think we will find ways to uh, expand and extend a physician's capacity to practice medicine uh, instead of being bogged down administratively. And I, and I think we'll see physicians beginning to drive uh, more of that decision making and creating more of that value in clinical settings. Now, if, if you're a physician and you're listening to this and you, you practice in certain areas, you're thinking to yourself, well, gee, that, that doesn't feel very practical or that feels like a bit of a ways off. But but there's very much a recognition that we have created artificial limiters for physicians and that if that supply um, is going to be harnessed and maximized, we have to drive practice transformation in a way that really unlocks the, the power of what physicians have been trained to do and create systems around that that enable it and make it better. What's
0: an example of that? So right now, I think everyone is fully aware of the fact that pajama time for a physician means you're sitting in front of your computer catching up on your EHR notes. So the administrative burden, it's real and it's large and and unwieldy. How are we harnessing data or doing this practice transformation that you're referring to or even starting to think about it so that it cuts down on the burden to physicians?
1: I think you're hitting on a, on a very real problem. I think an example of this, the big, the best manifestation of this, I think we're we're seeing right now, is in electronic health records. And we've imposed artificial requirements. We we've, we've basically tried to create efficiency that's driven by the government, that's driven by meaningful use, uh, by driving the adoption of of EMRs. And there, there's obviously great utility and, and great outcomes that come with good use of, of EMRs, logging data, making that data interoperable, and then ultimately linking that with population health platforms that population health management platforms that let us manage care. Uh, at the same time, we've not really been able to demonstrate that return on investment, that that output, that utility for a physician, because we're records are not interoperable, uh, because we we don't often link clinical data to systems, not just technology systems, but social systems and workflows and 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 otherwise to produce and identify issues that need to be addressed uh, or or tackled within a population. And I think absent having those downstream systems, absent being able to take the clinical information, uh, clinical data, and, and create value out of that data that has an impact on the patient, which ultimately has some impact on the physician that's practicing, the physician's not going to really see the value. And And when you talk about inexorable shifts— you look at what we have in macro with advancing care information, ongoing meaningful use, which HHS will regulate, 21st century cures, which uh, prohibits information blocking. We're going to continue to see that degree of interoperability. You have this entire technology infrastructure Uh, that's designed and developed to make that data mean something. And now back to where we started our, our discussion, we have to reverse engineer that. What's the population? What's the job? What are the system's assets and resources? How do we bring that to bear? And then ultimately, how do those systems bring value? And Stacey, I think that's where practice transformation begins to matter, where we're able to map practice transformation to populations and to payment. Physicians see the results of that clinically and economically, and they become more invested in that transition.
0: We kind of have, we're at at this place where we're collecting all this data, but we can't separate the signals from the noise and then figure out what to do with them. It, It kind of sounds like that we've got data all over the place. It's disconnected. I've got half of it, you've got half of it, but yet it takes us a long time to enter it. And what's the reward? Is the juice worth the squeeze? You know, at this point, you wonder because there's little return. But ultimately, do you think that having this data around, like at some point, we're going to be able to get the utility of it? Or do you feel like it's going to be kind of round two, let's try again and collect the different data in a different way? You know what I mean? Like, is what we've got so far going to be useful?
1: Yeah, I completely agree with the sentiment here. There's a whole series of buzzwords that have, have started to become retired and, and put in a graveyard, and big data is one of them. You heard this a lot two years ago and a lot a year ago, and, and I think one of the big problems most people would tell you with big data is that big data is not useful in a vacuum, It has to have a specific job, it has to have specific use cases, and that that has to be mapped again at a very precise level and to very discrete uses within the system. Data can be an incredibly powerful catalyst to identify trends and patterns and even make predictions down to the person level uh, that that gives us a sense for how to intervene or how to treat or, or how to engage But the data has to be applied and pointed in that way. And the longer it's diffuse and fragmented, the less valuable it is. Uh, But when and if we get to a place where it is integrated, it is interoperable, uh, it has become uh, focused in the right way. And again, I'll go back to this idea of doing a job for a specific person or population. It becomes incredibly useful and valuable.
0: All right. So in your day-to-day job, you (laughs) obviously give advice how to accelerate this transformation or what to do about it, at least to, to kind of mitigate the downside. Given all of these trends that we just talked about, and then the place that we have just articulated that we are with all this kind of big data that's collected in these data warehouses and disconnected internet of things, et cetera. What's your advice? Like, what are some, I mean, obviously, what do they say? You've seen one hospital, you've seen one hospital, which is pretty much true for any healthcare stakeholder. But what are some maybe core themes that we should all be thinking about in order to try to set ourselves up for success in the future?
1: It's a great question. I, I might give maybe just three thoughts. I look generally, I. When we're interacting with our clients, when I'm interacting with our clients, um, we we like to articulate what's happening in healthcare right now as a as a long seismic shift. And and we'll often use Governor Levitt will often state that healthcare is 25 years into a 40-year structural reformation process. And this started in the 90s, where there was this societal recognition that premiums were too high, costs were too high. Let's take a crack at managing care better. So we managed utilization, we managed cases, and we managed diseases, and we had the advent of the HMO. Well, people hated the HMO, and they hated insurance companies telling them what to do. So then we had the democratization of patients and patient rights, and we kind of flipped the pendulum back the other way. We determined a few years later, well, gee, we haven't solved the cost problem So we began talking about value and and different ways in which we can define value. And we've had a lot of false starts with this. But we would uh, tell you that we believe we are beginning to identify ways in which we can align uh, contracts uh, and incentives among all participants in a way that has them swim in their lane, add value in their unique realm of, of contribution and ultimately, we believe that those shifts and those transitions will drive us to you know, what we would call a uniquely American health system over the, the course of the next 15 years. In the meantime, or during that that time period, you know, we, I would probably encourage three things. I'd say number one is build for value. Look at what, wherever you're standing in healthcare. If you're med tech, if you're life science, if you're a hospital how are you being reimbursed today? How do you define the value you're generating and contributing back to the system? And when you look out over the course of time and the core reimbursement and the system changes, how does that disaffect you? And how do you maintain the value uh, creation and proposition that you bring to the system? And how do you charge and assess fees for that? Uh, I'd say the second thing is, build uh, for and around uh, the patient. Now, that sounds obvious because we're, we're all in healthcare, but patients' capacity to engage the system, uh, either as a consumer or as a patient, as we talked about before, is, is only going to increase. And and in my view is it will never operate like a perfect uh, economy but if you're building b2b systems or or other systems that don't bear in mind how consumers and patients are going to engage uh, and how what the downstream implications are i think you're ultimately doing that to your peril you also need to make sure that whatever it is you're doing to add value to the system can be clearly and cleanly integrated within the system. It has a value proposition. It is reimbursable. It creates value within workflows and clinical protocols and, and, uh, and other points that are clear and discrete and definable. It's one of the biggest problems I think we see right now with venture direct-to-consumer businesses. And, and the third and final, Stacey, I would say, is we're traditionally, historically, healthcare's been a very siloed industry. And it's been very transactional. And if we're really moving into this into this area of value, and we really believe we're going to see more integration by virtue of incentive alignment, then it raises the specter for collaboration. And to make that work, to forge consensus, to be collaborative, you have to have individuals with a high collaborative IQ. They operate with an abundance mentality. They think win-win. And they're, they're really able to give up the 30 to get the 70. And we don't see a lot of that. We still see very acrimonious, tense relationships between payers and providers and others. And, and these entities are going to have to figure out how to work collaboratively to create that value and drive that integration that, that ultimately you know, drives the system in, into a different direction that's consistent with these themes of, of transformation.
0: I have a couple of questions about one, two, and three. <laughs> so the first thing that you, you put on the list, which I thought was really interesting is just build for value. Make sure that what is happening and that what you're working on ultimately translates to reimbursable. Value, Do you feel like, I mean, the the track record of policymakers, and for good reason, this is hard to do. And this is one reason why capitalism is a thing, because capitalism sets prices, it's very efficient at setting prices and setting value of things, assuming that we're, we're dealing with a frictionless economic <laughs> system. But that aside. Um, <laughs> on the other hand, what we've kind of got here is some policymaker saying okay well this is how much this is worth do you feel like it's going to be like round 35 of this effort or 135 where you know you've got some policymaker who sets the price of something and then everyone starts doing it because it's reimbursed but ultimately either the price is too high or it's not necessarily the right thing to do like do you feel like we're getting better as a country at figuring out the price of things or the value of them?
1: It's a good question. And I, and I you know, this kind of goes back to, I don't know the count here, but we'll call it an shift number one, which is, you know, this transition away from fee for service and toward value. And I you think know, one of the things we can say with some clarity over the last few years is that the federal government and many state governments are, are trying to get out of the the traditional risk business. They're trying to capitate or create a, a predictive payment stream to managed care entities or other entities that manage the care and then punt those decisions around pricing and coverage to commercial entities who who have a different calculus and a different set of incentives to solve those problems. I think the more you see that shift take place, the more you see ACOs becoming adopted or capitated payments or or bundles or the like, then the market begins to set those rates. And If you have these other items begin to come to bear, the the, the alignment of the incentives, consumers being able to to make better decisions, then you do see more efficiency in um, in that price setting. You know, on the other side of that, I don't think you're ever going to leave a place where the government can't put its thumb on the scale in a pretty profound way, and that can be good and bad. You know, CMS is not a great innovator, but they're sure as heck a great adopter, and they can drive and, and promulgate change throughout the system in profound ways. And if CMS is doing that in a in a disciplined, scientifically rigorous way, which which I think they increasingly do then they do create value because they drive adoption. So I, I think that if you balance out kind of those two parts of the market, we'll continue to get more efficient in determining what should be covered and what's the price point at which it should be covered.
0: Your number two was build for the patient. And then you articulated very rapidly that you felt that this was a large issue for venture-backed direct-to-consumer businesses. Could you explain that a little bit more clearly?
1: I used the hymn's corollary a few minutes ago in, in this you know this this notion of walking out and there's there's hundreds or thousands of of booths and you could go to any major metropolitan area and there's an incubator or an accelerator or, or some group that's working with venture companies, venture backed companies that are kind of creating the next quote unquote Uber of healthcare, the next Facebook of healthcare. And <laughs> what a lot of these groups tend to lack is really a definable business case or a definable value proposition that fits within the bulwark of healthcare. In fact, I was having lunch with a, a colleague today and I'm going to see if I can pull up. I, I took a note to myself. Uh, this is a person that works with the, I won't say, it's, it's a major trade association that works with physicians. And he said, look, every time I have one of these venture groups approach me and, and they're wanting adoption within our circles, I, they have to answer three questions. Question one is explain in your own words the problem you're trying to solve. And number two is explain to me how it fits into a workflow. And the number three is tell me how it provides value and who pays for it. And I thought those were really profound questions because if I can't answer those three questions, I don't create any value in the system. All I've done is I've created a cool widget or or a cool technology, but that, that doesn't fit inside healthcare. And healthcare is so complex and it has so many uh, different uh, synapses that run between stakeholders that you have to be really clear about where that is. And I said, how many of 100 companies, how many can answer those three questions? And he said, probably less than 10. And that that becomes a bit of a problem and, and something I think those who are backing these folks and then these individuals will need to answer.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I was laughing when you said the Uber of this or the Facebook of that because. It's like, it's who, who's not. I mean, it'd be harder to find a company that's not <laughs> right. one of the
1: things. Um, but it is. well, And, and, and Stacy, there is really great stuff being developed out there. It's exciting. But you've got to answer those questions.
0: Yeah, it, it's amazing how many startups or organizations can't follow the dollar. And as I say this, it's hard to follow the dollar. I deal with health economics all day and, and it's fascinating to follow the dollar because oftentimes the dollar ends up in some weirdly unexpected place right. Um, <laughs> That's exactly right But at the end of the day to that last question that you mentioned who's gonna pay for it because I've heard it said that you know healthcare is the only industry where one person orders the dinner, another person pays for it and somebody else eats it. But that creates a large issue because if some one person is benefiting from it, but typically another person is paying for that benefit, it gets odd.
1: Yeah, you're, it's exactly right. And it's the system that, that we live in today. And again, there's no alignment of decision making. Uh, or economic interests. And and that's that's really what's created this complexity in our system. And I think what we're trying to solve for is that alignment. It is that integration. And I think the bet is, if and when we can achieve that within this unique system, we start to get the best of of all worlds. We we get an enterprise capital system that that really drives innovation. Uh, it it drives technology. It drives you know the the envy of the world and in life-saving solutions. Uh, while we are also aligning the payment and the either the personal or the societal and economic costs for those services uh, in a way that's sustainable. And they're not today. And that that's really where we have this you know this exigent this burning bridge.
0: Let's just talk about policy for a sec here. I got about 10 emails this morning, email newsletters, and I think the subject line of every single one was had something to do with uncertainty in the marketplace, you know, relative to the A-H-C-A, the A-H-C-A. You have to be like Yiddish to say that <laughs> properly. But obviously there are huge policy decisions at stake. We just talked about three or four, I lost count too, inexorable factors which are driving the the marketplace. Could any of them be halted by some decision which may or may not be made on Capitol Hill?
1: No, not not generally. I look I, I think there are we, we've kind of modeled this out, at least as it pertains to the shift from fee for service to value-based reimbursement. And we've we've taken all different kinds of variables and we've, we've looked at this empirically in different ways. And I'd say the three things that really begin to stall or impede some of these inexorable shifts are broader macroeconomic conditions. The economy slows down, it speeds it up. If the economy gets very healthy, growing four to 5% GDP, it slows it down but that doesn't stop any of these transitions. Consumers, consumer adoption, you know, again, I referenced in the 90s, the democratization of patients' rights. If consumers really begin to flex and and push back and, and either changes to reimbursement or changes in practice transformation, that begins to stall these things. Physician adoption and the way the physician workforce plays itself out has some bearing, but it's difficult to see the current debate on the Hill around the AHCA and coverage issues really accelerating or really fundamentally impeding some of these core changes. The, the debate on the Hill is fundamentally about coverage and access. It's about the economics for individuals who don't have the capacity to purchase coverage in the same way as those in the group market and that's a that's a very important discussion and debate to have. But at the end of the day, we believe there are market forces uh, driving uh, these transitions. There are bigger economic forces driving this transition, and then ultimately, what the Congress ends up producing will likely become a shadow of its of its former self for for political and, and the partisan reasons we've seen play out. So it's important, and I'm not downplaying the importance of what it can do for the system. But so many things are shifting. Uh, already that it's hard to see this having an incredible impact uh, for or against.
0: Hmm. So where can people find out more information about Levitt
1: partners should they be interested in learning more? Thank you for asking. Just our website, www.loveitpartners.com. We have an office in Salt Lake City. We have one here in Chicago. We have one in Washington, D.C. and do a litany of, of different strategy and policy work. And we can be you know, reached through that portal.
0: I thank you so much for being on the podcast today.
1: Stacey, thanks to you. Appreciate the time.